So today we do indeed begin our study of the book of Romans. There are 27 books in the New Testament, and Paul wrote nearly half of them, 13 letters. Most of them are letters to churches that he planted. The book of Romans is Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Paul did not himself plant this church, but this church most likely was started by Jewish believers when uh, they gathered together after the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon believers, and they were coming to know the Lord as their Savior. They started churches all around the area, and this church at Rome was one of them. And so Jewish converts made up this church at the beginning, but then they were forced to leave Rome, and as they left, Uh, the church filled in with Gentile converts. And then it was about five years later or so where these Jewish believers were allowed to return to Rome, and so they came back to this now Gentile-dominant church, and there were some problems. There was some conflict in this multi-ethnic church. So one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter to this church at Rome is to encourage them to have unity around the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the message that the church needs to hear and heed, to believe and obey. This is Paul's longest letter. Uh, Some have called it his magnum opus, his most important work. And it certainly is his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the best news the world has ever heard, and it has power to change your life forever. Not only if you don't know Jesus today, but also if you do. This message will change our lives. So today we begin with the introduction to this letter. And even here, in these opening verses, Paul's emphasis is on the gospel. Another pastor in our denomination, Legan Duncan, has said that in this introduction we have the authority of the gospel, the nature of the gospel, and the transforming power of the gospel. So I'm going to simply use those headings as the outline for the message this morning. We begin with the authority of the gospel. Start at verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. So this letter was written by one who is a servant of Of Christ Jesus. If you read Paul's other letters in the New Testament, you'll see him speak of this often. In his letter to the church at Colossae, he writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So, beloved, in whatever you do, Are you serving the Lord Christ? In his letter to the church at Galatia, he would write, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul serves Christ above everything else. Do we do the same? If we want to learn how to be a servant of Christ... The Apostle Paul will be a good guide for us. He will teach us. He will show us how as we make our way through the book of Romans. But why was he a servant of Christ? He wasn't always a servant of Christ. He was a servant of Christ because he was called to be an apostle. He didn't choose this. God chose this 
for him. But he was oh so thankful that the Lord did. But when you remember or maybe hear for the first time what God did in Paul's life to call him to be an apostle, it won't surprise you to hear him say, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. The book of Acts tells us how this happened. As the church was spreading, as it was growing, it was getting organized, Stephen was one of what many say is uh, one of the first deacons of the church. And as Stephen began to serve and to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus, the church certainly was blessed, but not everyone appreciated his work or his message. In fact, some who rejected Jesus and some who rejected Christianity began to oppose Stephen. In fact, so violently that they put him to death. And so he is known as the first martyr of the early church. And this happened under the leadership of a man named Saul. And the book of Acts tells us that Saul was ravaging the church. Just think of that word that the author chose, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to describe what Saul was doing. Ravaging the church. Not only had he killed Stephen, but then he was going door to door and dragging men and women off to prison. Husbands and wives Fathers and mothers. So think of it. If, if this was a modern day, if it was happening today, here, it would be something like this. As we are gathering for worship, a mob coming in and dragging me off or Colin off as we're preaching or Justin as he's leading, dragging us off outside and stoning us to death and then coming in, either interrupting our fellowship meal or going to your homes and dragging you off to prison. And Saul was leading the way. He's leading this effort. But he's not content to just persecute Christians in his own town. He wants to do the opposite of what we did with Molly this morning. He wants to do the opposite of church planting. He wants to go out and crush the church wherever it exists. And so he gets permission from the authorities. He has this letter signed. Here, go ahead. You can travel You can spread out and bring those Christians back to Jerusalem and put them in prison or worse. So this man Saul is on this mission of destruction to the church, persecution of those who follow Jesus. He's on that road to Damascus on the way of killing and persecuting those for whom Jesus died and Jesus intervenes. Jesus calls him to be an apostle. He sees the risen Christ. And Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And his eyes are going to be opened to the glory of who Jesus is. Which we pray will help happen to all of us here this morning, once again, or perhaps for the first time. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus, and he calls him to be an apostle, a missionary to the Gentiles. So this Saul, the murderer, becomes Paul, the messenger. How? Not through his own willpower. Not through his own efforts, his own self-improvement. Only because of and through the resurrection power of the risen Savior and the call of Jesus upon his life. He took his enemy and made him not only his friend, but his messenger. And so Paul says, 
I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. It was his joy now to serve the one who intervened in his life, took him off the road of destruction, off the road to hell, and put him on the path to the kingdom of God. It was his joy to serve the one who saved him. And as an apostle, Paul taught and he wrote with the authority of Jesus himself, the authority of the Holy Spirit. So beloved, when we study this book of Romans, when we dig deep into the gospel, it will not be the word of men that we are studying. It's not a message of men that we look at. It is indeed the very word of God, the message of of God with the authority of the gospel. So may God cause us and enable us to submit to it and to embrace his authority over our lives. We begin with the authority of the gospel. Second, we see the nature of the gospel. There are four components to this nature in this opening introduction. First, we see the gospel is of God or truth from God. Paul writes at the end of verse 1, He was set apart for the gospel of God. This is the gospel which God himself brings. It's the good news. It's the message. It is the revelation from God. Now, I have heard, I think I've shared this with you before. I heard uh, one pastor say that the most offensive verse in the Bible is the very first verse. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he says it's the most offensive because it proclaims there is a God who created us. There is a God who is over us and above us. There is authority outside of ourselves. So we are not autonomous. We are accountable to another. We don't make up our own rules. We don't make up our own truth, our own identity. We are given it from above from our creator, and we do not determine what the gospel is. We don't determine what the good news is or the way to God or how people are saved or which religion is true. God and God alone does. The gospel of God is truth. It is revelation from God, and it will never lose its divinity, its truth, its relevance. It's from God. It will always be from God. It will always be his message of salvation to a lost world. And it will always be true for everyone, everywhere, in all the nations. So what does this mean? This means that the gospel is not only the best news the world has ever heard. It is the most important news that you could ever hear. It is truth for everyone. And everyone, without exception, needs it. You today need it. If you will embrace this truth, it will change your life forever. But if you do not embrace the truth of the gospel, if you do not yield your life to the God of the gospel and do not worship Jesus as your Lord, not only will you perish in your sins, but the way that you live your life will not be in accordance with the truth with the way that God, your creator, designed, and you will not flourish. You will be dead inside. You may have all the pleasures of this life, but without Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it will profit you nothing. And you will be deceived, and you will miss 
the very reason for your entire existence. This is true for everyone who does not know Jesus. And beloved, we who have been entrusted with the gospel are called to share, to proclaim this good news that all would worship the God who made them. The gospel is truth from God that everyone is called to believe and to revolve our entire lives around. Second, the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God, and verse 2 goes on and says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So the New Testament has not yet been written when Paul is writing this letter. Here he's talking about the word of God contained in the Old Testament. And he refers to it as the Holy Scriptures. It is indeed the authoritative word of God. And in the Old Testament, God promises the gospel. He tells us about Jesus. The entire Bible is the story of Jesus. Beginning in the Old Testament. I'll give you just one example this morning. From Psalm 16. Verses 9 and 10. So King David wrote this psalm. He was the greatest king of God's people in the Old Testament. And he's praying for and he is rejoicing in God's help. And he ends by saying these words. Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Now David is praying about himself. But he also knows that he will die one day. So he wasn't only talking about himself. He was also talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it had been revealed to David by God himself that someone from his family would come after him to be the true king of God's people. And this king would reign forever. This king, Jesus, would be saved from death This holy one would not see corruption. So the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. That was just one. There are hundreds more throughout the Old Testament. These promises given from God long, long ago that are fulfilled only by Jesus. He is the true Messiah. Third, the gospel is Christ-centered. The gospel is Christ-centered, verses 3 and 4. This is the gospel of God concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, the son of God, and he was descended from David. So the Old Testament tells us that God's Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who would be the true anointed king to reign forever, he would be from the family of David. And Paul here tells us, Jesus was descended from David. Jesus is the one. The one that was promised long ago. The one that the prophets wrote about. And in telling us this, he's not only telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises and prophecies, but he also says, according to the flesh. He's saying Jesus came and was a true man. And in his true humanity, he was born in the weakness of human flesh. He had a body that would indeed suffer, that would die. And so he can sympathize with us and our weaknesses and in our sufferings. But Jesus did not die a normal death. And beloved, this is why the gospel is such good news for us. 
It's why you need to hear it and believe it and revolve your entire life around it. Because although God created you in his image for his glory, and he created you to be with him, to worship him, and to live in loving fellowship with him forever, we have all sinned and fall short of that design. We have fallen short of the glory of God, and our sin deserves punishment. And the word of God, the truth from God, tells us that that just punishment for our rebellion, for our sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. But God showed his great love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was a death unlike any other. It was not a normal death. Jesus gave himself up to be crucified on the cross in our place. Why? To take the death we deserved. To take our punishment for our sins. His death was our salvation. Amen? So Jesus was truly man. And as man, he was able to serve as our substitute. To take in his own body on the tree the punishment that we had earned, that we had deserved. But Jesus was not only truly man. He was and is also truly God. And so the weakness of his humanity that we see in his death was contrasted with the triumphant power displayed in his resurrection from the dead. Verse 4 tells us he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now listen carefully. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was raised from the dead. He always was and always will be the eternal son of God. But what happened? He was vindicated. His divinity was put on display in his resurrection from the dead. This is no ordinary man. There is something unique about him. Behold the risen Christ, the son of God in power. His enemies thought they could defeat him. They could silence him, but they were so wrong. And his living presence before their very eyes was irrefutable proof. He is the Son of God risen from the dead. Listen, you have to deal with Jesus. He died and he rose again. So how do you respond to a risen Savior? You worship Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is the good news concerning the Son of God. Beloved, Jesus is central to the gospel of God. You cannot have the gospel without the true, historical, sinless life of Jesus. Without his crucifixion and his death and his burial and his bodily resurrection. This is the gospel of God. And if anyone tries to preach a message devoid of Jesus and claims that it is the gospel, the way of salvation, the truth. It is not from God. The gospel of God is the good news concerning his son. It is all about Jesus, our savior. And then fourth, the gospel is for the glory of God among all the nations. Verse five, Paul continues, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name 
among all the nations. So Paul's mission, his calling from God, his creator, is to bring about the obedience of faith. And this obedience of faith, it is a wholehearted commitment of devotion to Jesus Christ and to the truth of his gospel. It is obedience to Jesus' command when he preached, repent and believe the gospel. And this obedience of faith is for the sake of his name among all the nations. The gospel is for all peoples everywhere. Some will say that this message is too exclusive. And we would say, yes, there is a sense in which it is exclusive. For there is only one way. There is only one Savior. There are not many gods that you can go to. There is one God, Jesus Christ, given for your salvation. So yes, there is a sense in which it is exclusive. But it is also the most inclusive message you could hear. For all are welcome. Anyone and everyone who repents and believes in Christ is welcome in to his eternal kingdom. Through Christ alone. God's design, his desire is that people among all the nations of the world would hear and believe the gospel. But why? Why does God desire this? Not only, we could say, not primarily for our good, for our blessing, although it is most certainly for our good and our greatest blessing, but primarily for the sake of his name. For the glory of God, his own glory. Beloved, what takes center stage in the promotion of the gospel is not the individual, it's not people, it's not you or me. It is the Savior, the Creator, the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, our own aim in promoting the gospel and sending out Molly, who is the first but hopefully not the last member that we will send out for the sake of his name. Our own aim must be oriented to his purpose. Yes, we love all peoples of all nations, but what do we love most above all else? The glory of our Savior. Amen. Perhaps one way we could consider this is to ask ourselves, are we God-centered or man-centered? Are we God-centered or man-centered? Is your highest aim in everything in life the glory of God? Or is it your own good, your own benefit, or perhaps the good of others? Now, in God's economy, in his perfect wisdom and his glorious kingdom, those aims are not opposed to each other. His glory is our good. But beloved, it is the glory of God that drives and determines and defines the good of man. And so if you remove the glory of God from the picture, if you seek to define your own good, what you think is best, what you desire, what you want or need to flourish in this life, apart from God and his glory and his ways, it will not lead to life, but death. Not peace, but pain. Not shalom, but suffering. For the sake of his name. For the glory 
of God. This must drive everything we do, even our proclamation of the gospel. Now, yes, amen, of course, we want all people everywhere to believe. We want them to know the joy of having their sins forgiven. We want them to know the love and the peace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But if it's the response of man that drives or determines what we do, not only will we struggle with discouragement, over time, this is what happens. God and his glory and his ways and his means get pushed to the side. And we begin to invent our own. We must guard against that. We seek the obedience of faith among all nations primarily for the sake of his name, for the glory of God. This will drive and determine everything we do. Listen, beloved, this entire introduction is all about God. It is all about God from start to finish. It is God who calls. It is God who sets apart. It is God who promises. It is God who gives prophets, who reveals his word. It is God who sends his son, who gives his life. It is God who raised him from the dead, who is Lord over all. It is God who equips his people to serve for his glory. It is God who calls you today to belong to him, from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen? You ready to study Romans? Come on! This is what our study of Romans is going to be all about. Our great God and his great glory, his amazing grace, and our humble, grateful response of obedience. And for the sake of his name, it will change our lives. It's going to change your life, beloved. You still need the gospel. You can be a Christian for 50 years. You still need the gospel. So forth, the transforming power of the gospel. Listen, Paul's writing to believers. Don't tell me we don't need the gospel. Verse 6. Nobody's ever told me that here, so. Sorry if that rebuke doesn't apply to you. Verse 6. Paul gives us three aspects of our new identity in Christ. How the gospel changes our lives. So verse 6. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to belong to Jesus to Jesus Christ. So first, we are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Beloved, we rejoice that Almighty God, our Creator, He hears our prayers. We can call and He will answer us. But before that can be true, you must hear Jesus call your name. Before you ever call out to Him, He calls out to you. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So all of you who believe in the gospel today, you trust in Jesus, you're Christians today, you have been called by Jesus. He knows you. He has said your name and you have responded to his call. Now the details, the circumstances may not be the same as they were for Saul turned Paul But your need, the initiative, the love, and the power that saved you, exactly the same. You did not know God. You did not believe in Jesus. You did not trust him or follow him or love him. You were dead in your sin. And he said, Troy, 
follow me. He said, Justin, you're mine. Follow me. You can talk to Justin. He'll be glad to tell you the story of how God did that in his life. He said, Nikki, you're mine. Follow me. You can talk to Nikki. She'll be glad to tell you about that story. Or she can give you her book with a great title, Pursued, right? Because Jesus pursued her. She wasn't pursuing him. He's called your name, beloved. And now you belong to him. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you out of death into life. He called you and now you are his. You belong to him. This is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you. Not whether you're young or old, strong or weak, rich or poor. Not whether you're married or single how many children you have, how successful they are, not what kind of job you have, whether you are a success or failure in the world's eyes, not whether you are accepted or rejected by men, not whether you're male or female, black or white. The most important thing about you is that you are his. By willingly living and dying and rising again in your place, Christ Jesus has made you his own. You belong to Jesus. Molly may be my daughter, but more than that, she belongs to Christ. She belongs to him. Second, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. You ever wonder why I use beloved so often in my sermons? It's because you're loved by God. Because that's what God says in his word. You are beloved of God. And so, beloved, the world may slander you. They may hate you. They may reject you. You are loved by God. Friends may forsake you. You are loved by God. Family may hurt you. You are loved by God. You may not love yourself. You are loved by God. You may be alone. But you are loved by God and truly never alone. He is with you always. You may suffer from anxiety or depression or any number of physical or mental or emotional ailments. Beloved, you are loved by God. This is the banner over your life. In every circumstance, in every trial, in every joy, forever. For those called by God who belong to Jesus Christ, you are loved by God and that will never change, no matter what. And one day, you will wonder how you ever doubted it. It will be so clear. Third, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So beloved, finally, you are holy and you are being made holy. Here's what that means. In God's court of law, you are not guilty. You are no longer condemned. You're no longer a sinner in his sight. You've been made a new creation. You are righteous in his sight. You are holy. You are a saint. And in practice, in daily living, you are set apart for God to be wholly devoted to him, to live a holy life. So here's what's going to happen for some of you. For some of you, there is there's some desire. There is some struggle 
with sin in your life right now, today. It has you discouraged. It has you frustrated. It has you pleading with Christ for mercy. And as we go through our study of Romans, the gospel of God, God is going to work in your life. He is going to continue that process of transformation and you will become what you are. You will grow in holiness. You will sin less and you will obey more in that area. Beloved, we will grow in holiness for the sake of his name as we study this word together. Glory to God. Now you cannot do this in your own efforts, but God will do it in you. His word will not return void. And so we close this morning with these closing words of his introduction. Grace to you and peace from who? From where? Not from me. Not from you. Not from people. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, do you believe that your Father in heaven loves to generously pour out his grace and his peace upon you? He's for you, beloved. He is not against you. He's for you. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, as we study Romans together, we will hear from God. We'll hear from God himself. When I say that, it's nothing about me or whoever stands in this pulpit. And it is everything about God and his promises in his word. So we'll hear from God, the creator of all things, the author of our salvation. We'll hear from God the truth about his son and we will be made like him for the obedience of faith, for the sake of his name among all the nations. Amen. Amen. Glory to God.